This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Wrestling with Life. Stories of my life immersed in the sport of wrestling. And the author is Phil Nowick. And his mother, Susan, joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Susan. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. This is a, going to be a very inspirational, motivational kind of uh, discussion. We're talking about your son who at the age of 40, passed away, in fact, in the year 2010, right? Correct. Right. He was a great wrestler and uh, a great competitor, and we'll get into some more of the details of his life, but he made you promise to do something, didn't he? Yes. And you've done it. (laughs) Yes. He wrote six stories about his life, and uh, he asked me to publish them. They were in the original uh, form that he wrote, but they were not, um, you know, in polished form to be published in a book. So I promised him that I would get them together. Well, Phil takes philosophical statements and then tells stories of his life experiences, mostly involving the sport of wrestling, that illustrates the importance of that statement. Uh, For example, I have a statement here that I really liked. Uh, Destiny is not a matter of chance. It is a a matter of choice. It is not a thing to be waited for. It is a thing to be achieved. William Jennings Bryan. Now, he starts one of his chapters with these quotes, right? Yes, uh uh-huh. That's story number one, uh where he tells about how he and his identical twin brother, David, were really (laughs) adventurous, um, testing out various um, activities and um, getting into trouble. (laughs) Getting into trouble. (laughs) Getting into trouble. Well, since you brought that up, I see that on the first day of kindergarten, David and Phil were expelled from school. (laughs) <laughs> Tell us oh. about that. That's a, that's a great way to start school and a great way to start the book. Yeah, right. Well, he has a, he has a bright and witty way of um, describing his experiences in life, and he has a really good sense of humor that um, travels through the whole book. Even though he, he does um, talk about some very serious subjects, he always has a humorous angle to to talking about them. And this incident in, in kindergarten was um, a chocolate pudding fight. <laughs> <laughs> it got them expelled from kindergarten on the first day. A chocolate pudding fight. Oh, I can see it, can't you? <laughs> yes, I can see it everywhere. Probably got on a teacher or two or something, maybe. Or the principal, who knows? Yes. Well, the last story of the book, we just need to bring it up now. We'll talk more about it later. But I just want everyone to understand that Phil uh, escaped 
successfully escaped the center of ground zero on 9-11. He was a Wall Street uh, banker? Yes. He, he worked with Merrill Lynch. He was an investment banker there on Wall Street. And that morning of the attack, he was working at, out at the World Trade Center Health Club. And um, the first plane hit, and he heard the explosion and uh, was affected. That club was um, in disarray, but he was able to escape down the stairs. And the story follows then what he felt and the after effects of how he looked at his um, situation in his life from that experience. Well, it's called Story 6 in the book, Wake Up, Call 911, or no, I'm sorry, I'll change that, I'll yes, edit that's that correct. out. Oh, it was? Call? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wake Up, Call 911. Yeah, that, of course, 911, I always thought a bit ironic since 911 is 911, that's, uh, yeah. yeah, so from that moment on, I guess he took a, got even more focused, is that right? Yeah, uh-huh. Um, he decided to um, become a little bit um, more interested in things that were going to produce um, a positive way for his life to go. And that maybe the things that he had been doing in his work were not the things that were really the most important in life. And what did he discover was the most important in his life? Well, um, he describes that very well in the last uh, paragraph of um, the first story. We all need help, and as I've said, I strongly believe that some sort of communal and productive pursuit that brings joy is essential in finding this right path. Forks in the road form spider webs in front of us each and every day. I feel lucky and humbled that wrestling led us, meaning he and David, his twin brother, in the right direction, saving our lives that first time. Now, he's talking about his experiences in elementary school at that time, mm-hmm. but he finishes by saying it wouldn't be the last. And so he feels that the, the strengths that he gained through the sport of wrestling um, helped him gain positive uh, ways in his life. And in on 9-11 he decided that he was going to return to what the path that gave him positive change, and that would be wrestling. And so he started some clubs. He started some clubs in the Denver Uh area? He moved back to Denver, Colorado, to another job with the help of a a very fine, influential uh, person, Larry Meisel, and who gave him a, a, you know, a job here with MDC Holdings. But along with that, he decided to balance his life with uh, coaching wrestling, yes. So he was 
helping young people, serving them, teaching them, and I'm sure he was a credible inspiration to them. Very motivating. Very motivating. Probably very demanding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and he says that, that the sport of wrestling is the most demanding sport that he knows of. But if you do the right thing and do the best that you can do, then that will make your life go on a positive path. You don't necessarily, his philosophy was that you didn't necessarily have to be the best, but be your best. Be your you best, know. yes. Be your best. Yes, and of course, and, that was exemplified in story four. I see this great quote in the title of the chapters, the, or the story is, The Greatest State Tournament Ever, and here's the quote from just one of those casual philosophers, Aristotle, Excellence is an art won by training and habit. <laughs> How do I say that? Habit- habituation? Is that what it is? I guess it is. I would just say it this way. Excellence is an art won by training and habit. We do not act rightly because we have virtual virtue or excellence, but we rather have those because we have acted rightly. And yes. that's that probably summed up his life, it sounds like. He was always trying to act rightly. Yes. Uh-huh. Do, do the right thing. <clears throat> and, you know, it doesn't mean that sometimes you do the wrong thing, but have positive influences that will help you right. towards getting... In a in a better path. Well, nobody's perfect, but you know, it sounded like Phil was always striving for that. Yes, and that's what he encouraged with um, his wrestling clubs and his um, endeavors in all of his life. He also said, in another message, "Have fun, and you perform better." Yes. Uh huh. Um, it sounds like really he had a lot. He so, it sounds like he had a lot of fun. He had that little twinkle in his eye that probably stayed there throughout his life. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um. <clears throat> the in uh, story number two, he talks about how wrestling is is, in my opinion, the most difficult sport to apply this axiom. And the acumen he's referring to is, don't let the pressures of competition outweigh the pleasures of competition. And he turns that to life and he says, if you're having a particularly bad day, substitute the word competition with the word life, and you will find you have just given yourself some of the sagest advice you will ever receive. Mm. Yes, so every day becomes a competition even with... Self. Yes. Yes. Probably the toughest uh, adversary is our self. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. But he says, focus on having fun. Even in the pressure cooker of a national competition, you will maximize your results. Well, he said this, we are what we do, or at least he was trying to practice that, right? Yes. 
And so his actions spoke louder than words. In uh, story five, let's see, what is that? Bad karma and moon pies? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is about um, an experience that Phil and David shared together in college, in their college years, where <laughs> Phil did not make weight for the weigh-in for the Midlands National Tournament. And he saw his brother David across the room, who had made weight at the same weight, and he asked him to change places with him. (laughs) David was attending the University of Stanford in California, and Philip was at the University of Michigan in Michigan. And they went into the restroom and changed their clothes so that David looked like he was from Michigan and Philip looked like he was from Stanford. And the plan was for Philip to wait for David to come back and they would change back, you know, and then they would go on with their respective teams. But it didn't work out that way because right after David made wait for Philip, he had to leave with the Michigan team. And so this put Philip where his um, one of the members of the Stanford team came to get him, and he was swept up with the Stanford team. He didn't know them. He didn't know anything, but he had to act like he was David. Of course, he looked exactly like him, and his um, identity switch was not detected. They just thought he was acting a little differently. (laughs) What a great story. (laughs) But from that experience, he learned how different ways of approaching the sport and um, the attitude was so much different with the Stanford team than with the Michigan team. And it allowed him some insight into his own life and his own behavior. And um, he, he gained a lot from that. He gained a lot of strength because the Stanford wrestlers were approaching the competition as to be the best that they could be, but the Michigan were to be the best. And Phil found that the maturity and the strength of the Stanford wrestlers was more what he wanted to be with. And so then that led to him transferring to Stanford. Phil became sick sick October of 2008, and he underwent surgery and uh, chemotherapy for eight months, and it looked like everything was working, and and then he got sick again in January 2010, and he passed away September 7th, 2010, at the age of 40. And we uh, salute him and his twin brother David and you, Susan. And why don't you finish with reading a couple of reviews about this great book. Would you like me to read the whole forward review from Forward Clarion Reviews by Jeff Friend? At five feet two inches, Phil Nowak would not be classified as a physical giant, especially in the world of wrestling. But he, what he lacked in stature, he more than compensated with drive, determination, and unabashed love for the sport of wrestling that gave him direction throughout his life. Phil had one last wrestling match, this one with life. In October 2008, he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. 
This as he faced down a challenger in the ring countless times in his earlier years, Phil fought bravely and with determination. But on September 7, 2010, cancer won. Wrestling with Life offers a warm, often funny, transparent view into the life of Phil Nowick. But even more, it speaks of family, love, growing up, and persevering. Phil left behind a book of inspiration that will most certainly cause readers to reflect on life and making the most of it. Maybe cancer didn't win after all. Great review. The title of the book, Wrestling with Life, Stories of My Life Immersed in the Sport of Wrestling, and the author is Phil Nowick. Susan, tell us how to get Phil's book. Um, it's available uh, from most online uh, booksellers, such as Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. The publisher, Author House, also offers it. Um, here in the Denver area, it's uh, offered at the Tattered Cover, which is a, a special bookstore here. Thanks, Susan. Thanks for being on Author Talk. Oh, I appreciate your, the chance of telling you about Bill's book, Wrestling with Life. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you love finding fabulous deals and enjoy fashion and discussing celebrities? Then you've touched the right dial. Join the lovely ladies of Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole, Lakeisha, and Raquel, as they get your weekend started off right. Every week on Friday at 6 p.m. Central on Togenet.com. They'll be discussing great deals on hot products, affordable fashions, and the latest celebrity news. We know you'll feel good after listening to this show and eager to come back the following week to tune in and hear news, tips, and advice on how to save while shopping for amazing products. For more on your Celebrity Coupon hosts and amazing deals and downloads, check out their webpage at CelebrityCoupon.com. You never know who'll be joining them and what giveaways they'll have. It's talk radio like never before. Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole. Lakeisha and Raquel. Friday afternoons at 7, 6 central on toginet.com. It's time to get your boots on with the boot campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray. Thursdays at noon, 1 central on toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Burning Bridges, and the author is N.J. Aday. And Natalie joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Natalie. Hello, 
Hello. I'm going to read a few things you've written about your book so everyone understands uh, what we're going to be talking about. You say this. This is about a woman who grew up discovering that she could have and do pretty much anything she wanted by using the power of control. Even in abuse, when she discovered that her partner was going to leave her, she used tactics to build a rift between her partner's family and friends so that she felt she'd have nowhere to go. Her partner lived in fear from day to day, not knowing what was going to happen next. So this story about how people control people, I guess. Right, right. So what was the motivation to publish the book? Well, actually, when I wrote the book, it wasn't intended for publication. Um, it was uh, my own closure uh, after she passed away uh, your memoirs, four years ago. Your memoirs, so to speak. Right, right. And uh, I started it uh, soon after she passed away, and it became so emotional I couldn't finish it. A friend of mine from out of state uh, wanted to read some of it, and she did. She liked it, and she said, why aren't you finishing it? And I explained that I just, you know, it was too emotional. I couldn't. But um, with some prodding, she convinced me that I should and uh, maybe get it published, that other people could learn from this. And just kind of, you know, seeing what my options were, I went online and I found Author House and uh, talked with a lady and I said, well, I'm thinking about publishing it. She asked me what it was about and I explained it to her and she says, you know what, do it. So uh, she says, we will be very happy to publish it. And uh, so the rest is history. <laughs> right. Well, why do you feel you have to remember it? Um, it was a huge lesson on my part. Uh, Tommy was mentally ill, uh, and she got worse as the years went by. And there were times when she realized how bad it was and what she had done. And I'm, I'm not sure what her, um, oh, geez, I'm not sure why she wanted me to remember it except to learn from it and uh, not to be like her, I guess. But I, I won't forget because it took 24 years of my life and my family. Were there, and, times, uh, were there times when you were afraid for your life? Yes, yes. Uh, I had um, a knife pointed at me, threatening me, uh, telling me that, uh, I could be cut up into a whole bunch of little pieces and put in a baggie and thrown off of the cliff, and no one would ever know. And the first couple of times, I was very, very frightened. Um, when it was told to me about after that, I just kind of went, yeah, well, if you're going to do it, do it. You know, I mean, I got used to it. Um I knew deep down inside she really didn't mean it, but it was very frightening. Why couldn't you just walk away from it? Um, I tried. I really did. Uh, but she 
got a hold of my family and said some things that were just private and very, very bad things and threatened them. And uh, I felt that the only way to keep her at bay was to stay with her. And as long as everything was fine for a while, she didn't make phone calls. She didn't write letters to them. And uh, they felt, you know, even though they were threatened, they felt a little safer as long as she stayed where she was at, you know. Did you love her? Um, yes, I did. I did. There was a, a, a big part of her that was uh, normal, believe it or not. She acted normal. Uh, when people would first meet her, they would just absolutely love her. But if you, if you said something that would set her off, uh, she was extremely violent and mean and would really carry on. Well, if you had it to do over again, would you? Of course not. I don't think I could ever put my family through that again or myself. Uh, I, I, I feel that I'm a lot stronger than I was at the age of 32. And uh, it was a horrible experience. She knew it was a horrible experience. She just couldn't let me go. Well, when did you realize that this was a, a, a horrible relationship, a bad one? About five years afterward. You know, when you first meet someone, you're both on your best behavior. You know, you're, you're trying to get someone into your, you know, into your life. And uh, when they realize that, you know, things are, you know, stamped and sealed, you know, everything's okay, then your true self starts emerging. And uh, she probably figured that I didn't really have any place to go, and she wanted to make sure that of that. No, I would not ever do it again. And, uh, do, do these kinds of bad relationships happen more often than people realize? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people that uh, these things happen to, and they feel embarrassed because uh, it, it becomes a very personal thing. And they don't want to make the other person pissed off, you know, or angry. So... Uh, they don't do anything about it, thinking, you know, that, you know, their partner says, I'm sorry, it will never happen again, I don't know what was wrong. And and you believe them, because when you care for someone, you try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of people do that. And, you know, of course, the repercussion of calling the police and, uh, having a restraining order is uh, almost worse than the abuse itself, or it can be. So this was the worst case of what might be called obsession and possession. Yes, I was also stalked when I did leave her. So after 24 years, you left her, and how long ago was that? Well, actually... Um, we were two years apart uh, because she had uh, gone into my uh, uh, credit union account 
and there were problems, you know, dealing with the police and whatever, and I was told to stay away. And uh, there was a big deal on that. Um, but she came back. Uh, every time I went to the bank or a restaurant, she'd pull in next to me. Uh, I'd go in, and sometimes she'd come in and sit down. She just would not leave me alone. Um, she passed away uh, four years ago here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I had decided to go with her to Las Vegas to keep her as far away from my family as possible. She did a lot of changing. She had uh, lung cancer and passed away from that. But prior to that, uh, six months before she did, she took a gun and shot herself in the head. What kind of an effect did that have on you? Um, I was surprised. I I think it was out of her character, but given the fact that she was in a lot of pain uh, and knowing that she was, she knew she was losing control of uh, physically and mentally because of her illness, she felt she had no recourse, no other recourse. Was she on any kind of medication? Oh, yeah. She was on Lyrica, and uh, it didn't seem to help. The, uh, the cancer was uh, in its fourth stage, and uh, the, the, uh, it affected her bones, and that's where a lot of the pain came from. So this mental instability, uh, which resulted in this control over everything, as you look back on it, what have you learned from this? Um, Well, I I try not to not trust people. What I do is I'm very careful when I meet people, and uh, I... I think taking time and knowing someone before you live with them. In a lot of gay relationships, uh, people move in in a matter of days after they meet each other. And sometimes it works, and it lasts for years and years without any problem. Other times, uh, it's, it's really a not a good idea. You know, date for a while and make sure that you know the person, you know. And it, it's, it's the same with, with uh, heterosexuals, you know. You meet the person, know them before you get married, and sometimes that doesn't always work either. But I've been very careful. My lessons have been um, in, in choosing the right person, choosing your friends wisely. So you're also critical of the state of California, of the way they dealt with her and you. Uh, Yes, I am. Um, The law enforcement, you know, of course there's a lot of uh, policemen around and whatever, and they've got a lot of crimes to solve, and I understand that. But when you walk into a, a police department, and you say, I need help. 
you know, my partner is threatening to kill herself. I've got a gun in there, and it has my name on it because I bought it. And she's threatening to use it. Cop just looks at me, kind of smiles, and he says, well, just walk away. Or, you know, just do whatever, you know. They don't seem to care. And, you know, that really upsets me, you know, and, and it did. Um, there was another time when she took a, a hatchet and uh, tried to cut the chain off of uh, my motorcycle that was chained to a gas a gas fixture, anyway, outside of a mobile home. And uh, I thought she was, you know, going to blow us all up. And uh, she claimed that it was her motorcycle when, in fact, it, it wasn't. It was in my name. Um, I called the police. They came out, and this was in Glendora. They uh, wrote it off as a domestic disturbance. They didn't even consider the fact that she was using a, you know, had a, a hatchet in her hand. Yeah, she sweet-talked her way out of it, and that was it. So the bottom line is you believe gay couples need more rights. I believe so. I I have absolutely, um, oh, I don't know how to put this. I believe that if you want to get married, you should be able to. But I think the bottom line is that uh, we're so we've become so far advanced in our lives and uh, in the gay community that there are more and more people that have been together for many many years without incident and they want to be married. But I think the bottom line is is the rights and the uh, benefits. I thought I had a heart attack at work. Um, they called Tommy. Tommy tried to come to the hospital to see me. They would not let her in the emergency room. And, of course, being Tommy, she, you know, wormed her way in and busted in, you know, and she wasn't going to take no for an answer. And I think a lot of gay couples would agree with me that we need to change that law, you know, uh, it was very disheartening. She did make her, you know, self-available. She did come in. But, um, you know, they were very upset about it. I think the law needs to change. These memoirs uh, that have become your book, Burning Bridges, uh, you have changed the names of all the characters in the book. Well, the reason why I did that is mainly for my family and uh, her immediate family. I, I just don't want any problems, um, you know, the legal standpoint of it. And it was easier to write for me. The author is N.J. Aday, the title of the book, Burning Bridges. Natalie, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go on Amazon.com and uh, read all about it and uh, order it. Uh, also on uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, and I, I'm very excited. <laughs> well, thank you, Natalie. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. 
So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Beichman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field, bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Santa's Adventures. Flight Preparations, 2007, 2009, and 2010. And the poet is Anne Morrissey, and she joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Anne. Hello. Well, this is quite a twist on Santa Claus, and and I think everyone will just enjoy the interesting challenges that you create for Santa. (laughs) Let Let me read a few things that you've written just to help everyone understand Santa's adventures contains three narrative poems relating the misadventures of Santa, the elves and the deer as they prepare for their Christmas Eve flight while dealing with some international problems from the year in which the poem was written. Of course, we, you focus on the swine flu and the Icelandic volcano, which caused traffic problems in two, 2010, and and you've been doing this for some time, haven't you? Yes, I have. For about a decade, I've been writing um, a, a Christmas poem uh, about uh, the problems that you mentioned, and um, I chose three of them, uh, the three that I thought were most tolerable for readers. I have to say right off the bat, it's not great literature, but it's fun. <laughs> it's a fun read. And um, I, the reason that I published these was because I really didn't have much else to offer in my attempt to raise funds for some important research that's going on, very exciting research. Yeah, well, tell us in about fact. that. Tell us about that, Anne, and, and of course, why you are so connected to it. Well, um, this is uh, research that 
taking place at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, it was um, a, a, a Harvard researcher who was working with uh, diabetic mice, mice who had been diabetic since birth, who were now adults, and she was trying to give them um, transplants of insulin-producing cells or beta cells. Now, type 1 diabetics um, have had their immune system attack their insulin-producing beta cells in their pancreas. And so they no longer produce insulin, and they need insulin injections from the point that their um, disease occurs. So she was preparing these diabetic mice for transplants because transplants don't seem to live very long in either mice or humans. So she uh, discovered which particular immune cell was attacking the beta cells. She gave... Um, a drug that she found that was effective in killing that one immune cell without bothering the rest of their immune system. So they didn't have to take lifelong immune suppressant drugs. And uh, she gave that, injected it in the mice, and the next morning when she came back to the lab expecting to do the transplants, she discovered that the mice were controlling their own blood sugars they not only didn't need the transplants, but they didn't need the insulin injections that they had been living on their whole lives. So this, of course, was a shock to her that she had somehow cured a disease that's considered a lifelong disease. And I can remember myself, I've had the disease 60 years. And when my parents in 1951 were um, dealing with the doctors, and I remember hearing the doctor tell my parents, if somebody comes along and says they have a cure for this disease, this is a lifelong disease. It's incurable. So don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. So apparently there were, um, back in the 50s, um, I don't think they used the word scam, but there were con artists or people that were getting money from others by pretending they had cures for various diseases. So it, this has long been considered an incurable disease, and that may be why this researcher is having a lot of trouble getting funding uh, for the human trials. Um, this her, her trials with the mice, um, were successful several times, and so four other American labs and one Asian lab uh, repeated her um, her uh, trials with mice and were successful. Um, they had different levels of success in each experiment, but um, it it was thrilling enough and um, and de- defensible enough that the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved it for human trials. And so in 2008, when they got that approval, um, they started were looking for funding for the Phase 1 trial. And fortunately, Lee Iacocca, who has been, um, he, he's been funding various charities through the Iacocca Foundation, but he was particularly interested in diabetes because his wife had... Um, died from diabetes complications. And so he was um, helpful in getting funds 
through the Iacocca Foundation uh, for some of the later mice trials and for the first human trial. And that has been completed now. And it was interesting, this I didn't know, that um, when they have human trials of, uh, um, of drugs, the first is just to see that the drug is safe. And then in the phase two and phase three trials, they look for what determines the dosage and um, if different dosages are required depending on a wide variety of things. And so they do all of that during the second and third trials. So phase two trials are about to begin. And the um, researcher has successfully raised the eight million. Well, actually she raised seven million. And eight was necessary to start the phase two trials. So Lee Iacocca came to the rescue again and put in another million so that the phase two trials can begin. But it's a three-year trial. So they need a total of 25 million to, to complete that trial. And that's why I uh, was desperate to do something that would uh, bring in money and alert people, other people to contribute. And so I put together three of these poems that, um, as I said, are not great literature, but they're fun, and I'm hoping that people will buy them. It's an $11.30 book that's available at Barnes & Noble and uh, barnesandnoble.com and at um, amazon.com. And um, it. You have to pay, of course, a uh, shipping and handling fee, but if you call your local Barnes and & Noble uh, and, and order the book, which they don't carry in stock, but if you order it and they call you back, you can pick it up and not have to pay the uh, shipping and handling fee. So I'm happy about that because I want the book to be um, a real reasonable price so that the word will spread. Well, the title again is Santa's Adventures Flight. Preparations 2007, 2009, 2010. Uh, of course, 2007, Santa has to deal with a Russian submarine. Now, you just know that he's going to handle that with just the best, the best <laughs> political, uh, you know, intelligence. <laughs> that is exactly true. And also, the, you'll see a, a lot of cooperation between the elf, the deer, and Santa in each one of these instances which makes me think that maybe our um, politicians need to read the book. That's exactly right. And then they can find out how to get how along. How to cooperate. Yes, how yeah. to cooperate, especially when this, you know, the Russian submarine plants their flag on the bottom yes, of the ocean true. under the North Pole. That's pretty serious business. Yes, it is, because it means <laughs> that they control those uh, shipping lanes. And... Um, but, of course, when they uh, come to Santa's little island in, in the middle of the North Sea, they um, they plan to do what all boisterous young sailors might want to do. They plan to check it out and see what they can take. Right. And, uh, of course, the elves win them over with uh, because they welcome them and offer them food. Of but course. I don't want to give away the plot. No, I'm so. just going to read uh, one, no, two stanzas here so everyone understands how cute this is. But out in the dark, not far from his house, a Russian sub lurked still as a mouse. They had planted a flag deep under the ice. The North Pole was theirs, which they thought. 
was nice. <laughs> That's very well done. You're really good, Anne. Well, thank you. That's really well done. And, of course, we get serious here, folks, because we're going to talk about the H1N1 flu that, unfortunately, is it the reindeer or, or is it Rudolph well, that gets it? It, it, um, it, it uh, spread around the world, you'll remember, in 2009. Uh, right. And um, it, by the time it got to the North Pole, it had mutated ah. into reindeer flu, <laughs> into R1N1. Reindeer flu. There you go. So R1N1. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so Rudolph that, is in trouble, right? Oh, yes. Well, all yeah. the four reindeer are suffering, and they, That's this right. is the two, two nights before the flight has to take place. So, of course, they have to figure some other way to, to pull the sleigh, and um, I'll let all those engineering minds out there work on that until they read the book. And the third poem deals with the S. Icelandic Volcano of 2010. And how do you pronounce that long word? Uh, (laughs) Ayafjallajokul. Which, of course... What does that mean? (laughs) speaks like that, right? Well, that's the name of the volcano. And Ah. um, you'll recall that there were a lot of flights canceled uh, because of the ash and the lava. And so, of course, uh, now Santa faces the problem of whether or not his deer can breathe as they fly through that. So they have to to, uh, do some, again, some engineering. And um, maybe maybe that will stir the engineers in the world to order the book. Well, here's <laughs> another just... stanza. I'll read this. Santa, oh, okay. Santa stood gazing at the darkening sky. December midday, he thought with a sigh. The deer wouldn't see through the ash Christmas night, and their hacking and coughing would endanger the flight. You're really good. Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoy <laughs> that, rhyme sure, and rhythm. Yes, I'm sure kids are really going to enjoy this, and, and that's what it is, isn't it? It's just a real fun, just well, a fun it, book for kids to, to hear and adults to read to kids. Yeah, it is. And, and hopefully, uh, since it was written for adults, um, you know, I sent these poems to friends and, and family each Christmas uh, with my Christmas card, and so... Um, the, the adults might appreciate more the you know the plight of of the Santa and the elves and the um, the various craziness which they use to get to get through the situation. But um, I think the rhyme and rhythm is what children will oh, yes. enjoy. And and the pictures the uh, uh, it's a self publishing company, Arthur House, that has provided oh, some wonderful illustrations. Oh, they're great. Just they're really delightful. good. Yes. Yeah. Colorful. They just come alive. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I really, you now, know, really enjoyed at, them. At the beginning of your book, in the introduction, and in the afterword of the book, uh, you discuss in detail about your cause to help fund this research. Uh, tell us the uh, research website. Okay. Um, the research website is uh, www. And then the name of the researcher, Faustman, F-A-U-S-T-M-A-N, lab.org. Yes, and she's at the Massachusetts Mass- uh, General, General Hospital. Hospital. And um, the, she is a Harvard researcher who works with their labs at Massachusetts General. And um, 
she and a Dr. Nathan have uh, been working on this uh, lab research, and uh, it's it's just thrilling that uh, you know something that was always considered incurable is actually has a real potential cure. Plus, for other immune disorders. This ability to isolate one immune cell without messing up the whole immune system and find a drug that will kill that one cell, every immune system disorder could profit from this. So it's it's very exciting for many people besides type 1 diabetics. And I'm sure, as with all science, um, even though it doesn't provide any solution for type 2 diabetics, who are more numerous, um, it, it adds to the body of knowledge that will eventually bring us some better news for them. Well, Anne, you are a great poet, and you're a great uh, cr- crusader, and we appreciate all that you're doing. And we're sorry you have suffered for so long under this type 1 diabetes, well, but maybe the future generations, they won't have to face it, right? Oh, I hope so. But I also must add... Um, the, the organizations that raise money for diabetes have done wonderful things for making this disease easier to live with. Oh, that's um, good. And, but I would ask people who belong to those organizations to uh, find out if they are supporting the Faustman research, because at least a little of their contributions uh, should really go to this. It's, it's such exciting research. The title of the book, Santa's Adventures, Flight Preparations, 2007, 2009, 2010. And the poet is Anne Morrissey. Anne, tell us how to get your book. Tell us how to get it again. Okay. Um, It's uh, available on Amazon.com and from BarnesandNoble.com or from your local Barnes & Noble station. Also, if you go to the book's website, which I'll give you now, um, you can order it directly from the publisher. Um, It's uh, www.diabetessanta.com. And I will be having a second book come out, Santa's Adventures 2, in November. So both will be in time for this Christmas. And it's a small book, so it will be great to have several on hand for those last-minute um, sudden gifts that you have to come up with. That's right. Good idea. Thank you, Ann. Thank, Thank you for being you. with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.